Okay, welcome friends, comrades, and readers of Zero Books. I'm Craig, the host of Asset Horizon and Inner Experience Podcasts. And today I'm joined by American theologian, religious scholar, culture critic, and translator, and Zero Books author, Adam Kotzko. Adam has written three books for Zero, Why We Love Sociopaths in 2012, Awkwardness in 2010, and the book that we'll talk about today, Creepiness in 2015. He is also the author of Zizek and Theology from 2008. Adam, welcome to Zero Books Archives. Thanks for having me. So today we are going to talk about creepiness. And I don't know why this is the case, why the stars have aligned as such, but it seems that I'm Zero Books resident phenomenologist now. <laughs> In almost every interview that I've conducted, I've talked about Freud's notion of the uncanny, and we're going to do that here again today. I'd like to start out the interview with you talking about what is creepiness? And the question I have here is the, the book begins with this incredible indictment of the Burger King mascot as it appeared in around 2015 or thereabouts, right? As the creep par excellence, or as he is called in the book, the creepy king. Maybe you could take us through a, a brief retrospective on BK's poorly received ad campaign and explain how this example of creepiness sets the stage for what you attempt to do in the book. Yeah, I think I had always joked that my study of negative character traits like awkwardness and sociopath type of characters would culminate in the very worst character trait, creepiness. But I think it was really the Burger King campaign that emboldened me that there really was something going out of the culture. Because if you watch these commercials, it features a human actor, but wearing this kind of absolutely still plastic mask of this kind of grinning king as though he's in like the, the playground at the fast food restaurant or whatever. And just inserting himself into situations where he doesn't belong. Like, somebody waking up in the morning rolling over and finding that the king is in his bed like holding a breakfast sandwich for him or something like that or he he wakes up and sees that the, the king is just like staring at at him and through his window like just very stalkerish and invasive and just there's no other way to explain it but creepy and you just wonder how did this happen? How could this possibly happen? Because commercials are meant to be attractive and to get you to like the company. And why would they like air these kind of um, extremely awful commercials? And they weren't popular in the sense, I don't know if they like worked in the sense of getting Burger King more customers, but they certainly were very much commented on and people remember them to this day in a way they don't usually remember ancient like decades old commercials. There was clearly some time in the mid to late 2000s, early 2010s, in which the kind of style and manner of advertising seemed to shift towards this high speed irony, awkward moments, cool quips, creepy vignettes. I'm thinking here about the Geico commercials and the Old Spice ads and so on. I, I don't want to move too far away from the topic of creepiness because of course there's some awkwardness happening in there, but maybe you can elaborate why you think it made its way into advertising. Yeah, I think that there's like a saturation and exhaustion of advertising, like mm. too many channels, too many ads, too many, too much going on. And I feel like, especially with online ads, revealing how much people don't click on them and don't engage with them, there's this crisis of um, confidence of advertising of what is it that we're actually doing here? And I think that that lends itself to this kind of like self-deprecating mode. Like a lot of the Geico ads are complete non sequiturs. 
So they're like, we know you don't want to watch a commercial about car insurance. Here's something completely unrelated that hopefully you'll find entertaining. And then we'll come back and say, okay, now. And the advertising for things like Old Space deodorant, like that's not a very exciting thing, but to try to make it humorous (laughs) or to make it it blend in with the, the content that you're watching a little bit more. I think of it as a kind of like the Adult Swim aesthetic right. kind of migrating into advertising. And Adult Swim was already so fragmentary and non sequitur. And like the shows are often like only 10 minutes, not even a full half hour. And so I think it makes sense that those things converged. Yeah, it just seems strange to me at that time. Everyone talks about the concept of late or advanced capitalism. And it was just curious to me. What wasn't curious to me is that advertising accelerated to a rate at which a commercial might be eight to 10 seconds long, right? This is not uncommon in places like Japan. And I'm wondering if there's some borrowing of that aesthetic there. But the strange thing I thought at the time is, is this the upper limit of advertising, this creation of a repulsion that's meant to draw you to uh, a product? And this brings me back to how you started this project, which was a bar conversation about Heidegger and the concept of Dasein. And I'm not going to ask you to explain it like I'm five in two minutes here, but what happened in that conversation? Like, how did this whole project of writing this trilogy for Zero emerge out of that conversation? If I were a fly on the wall in the bar, what would I have heard? And then if I were like a little grub in your brain for the ensuing days, what were the kinds of things that you were thinking about? Heidegger, Dasein is his way of referring to just what's distinctive about human existence. And one of the most memorable parts of his book, Being in Time, is his analysis of the mood of anxiety. Like he talks about the importance of mood fundamental attunements of your kind of way of being in the world. And the bit on anxiety is very fruitful and impactful, but it doesn't, like it's the only one he does. Like he says, mood is super important, but it's the only one he does. And there's like another text where he talks about um, profound boredom as another like revelatory mood. And so I was reading some stuff by Jean-Luc Nancy that was critiquing Heidegger for being a little bit too individualistic, a little bit too focused on your own internal, like anxiety and boredom are both kind of isolating, right? You're not usually bored together because that has something to do. But, and so I was just casting about for a social mood or attunement that would fit in this, like half jokingly, because at this point there was a lot of awkward humor that was coming out. Like it was going a little bit more mainstream with The Office, but there was also, you know, Curb Your Enthusiasm, the Apatow movies, that kind of stuff that right. really dwelled on awkwardness and reveled in it in a weird way. And I thought that awkwardness could be the Heideggerian mood of like social life when it starts to break down, just like in anxiety, your, your kind of uh, view of the future breaks down or in boredom, your kind of connection to the world around you breaks down. And awkwardness is our social connection breaking down and yet it was being presented as this kind of dynamic and entertaining spectacle in a way that was very hard to understand yeah that it seems to me and after reading just your introduction here on creepiness i'm sticking to my thesis that you know advertising um explores all these different poles of anxiety at first, maybe by a kind of fear of missing out or a sense of inclusivity being trendy. And one of the ways to invert that pole is to go to this kind of repulsion or creepiness to cultivate anxiety in a different sort of way. And one of the concepts that you connect this 
particular form of anxiety and creepiness too is Freud's notion of the uncanny, uncanniness, unheimlich or unheimlichkeit. Maybe, and this is something that I've done in another uh, video for Zero, but maybe we can get your summary and your cast of what Freud means by the uncanny and how does it pertain to this paradigm of human psychology with, with respect to creepiness? Yeah, I think that I propose in my book half sarcastically that this term unheimlich, which is notoriously difficult to translate, that actually creepiness would be the best translation. And he, the etymological root of it is like, it'd be like unhomely, like something that doesn't belong at home. But he, as Freud always does, he turns it around and says, oh, the problem is that it's too close to home. Something that would be uncanny would be if you find like a total, like perfect doppelganger for yourself out there. The problem isn't that this is like foreign to you, it's that it's too close to you. It's too, it hits too close to home. Or something like he talks about like ghost stories and stuff. And that's like somebody who does belong there, but is no longer there, like suddenly showing up. One of the good examples that you brought up, and I, I'd never thought to think of this, is the idea of the uncanniness of the uncle figure, the cool uncle, the creepy uncle, and how this person is situated against the Oedipal tableau of Freud, of the mother and the father. Could you say a little bit about that? Because I thought that was a really interesting note in the book. Yeah, that's the creepy uncle is a really interesting figure because any he exemplifies one thing that I identify as being really central to creepiness is like this kind of opaque desire. What does he want? What is his role here? He's an adult man, but he's not your dad. He doesn't have direct like authority or, or responsibility for you. And you're like, why does he want to hang out? Like the cool uncle, like, it seems like such a, a cool opportunity, this adult who's like giving you access to all these kind of transgressive things or like, like giving you permission to do stuff you normally wouldn't do. And kids usually don't think of adults as human beings, and so they're spared this thought. But you, if you did think about it, you'd say, what is he getting out of this? And isn't this a weird situation. And I think there's also a great example of a creepy uncle type of story is there was an Onion article that said area uncle agrees that niece is developing into a beautiful object. You're just getting this weird vibe of like, why are you looking at me this way? I have no children myself and probably about a score of nieces and nephews and it's my wife and I who are always shelling out money at the toy store and like showing them like how a synthesizer works and that sort of yeah. thing. But one of the things that I think is interesting against, for example, I, I do work in Deleuze and Gattari. And one of the things that they talk about in Anti-Oedipus is the figure of the nuclear family against how families typically actually are. It's not always mom, dad, and the kid or three kids and the dog or whatever, but there is the uncle who lives down the road or he's staying with them on the couch for three months in the midst of his divorce and whoever else. And yeah. th this figure is in some ways the closest to the authority figure in the family and the most capable of really doing some kind of rupture, either positive or negative to the family, as an artistic influence, for example, or the very bad things that can happen. What might be some of the reasons for this affinity with the uncanny as both a subject for research and a broader cultural meme? Of course, these days, if you go on Facebook or Twitter, every six months or so, there's some upgrade to an Android that was built by a Japanese designer who's looking more and more like you and creating this uncanny valley effect. Can you speculate maybe a bit more on the political importance of, of Freud in this sense? 
Yeah, I think that why this concept proves attractive and, and, and powerful for these type of analyses is that I, I get the sense that zero is definitely a very leftist imprint, but one that is mainly focused on culture as opposed to like chopping the financial and economic stats or whatever. And the uncanny is like this powerful cultural concept that points towards where things are starting to break down or when things are like starting to re- reveal an uncomfortable truth that it, it doesn't want to, but, but it can't help but do. I think it, it's really central to the type of like symptomatic reading of culture that, that leftists often are constrained to do because if we're being real, like 95% of the stuff that, that we're responding to was like produced by very massive corporations and presumably does not have some type of leftist message. And so in order to find that critical leverage, you have to find the points where where the piece of art or the that it seems to be like telling on itself in a way that it doesn't want to. And I think the uncan those uncanny moments, like for instance, the uncanny figures in, in contemporary advertising, like they're admitting in a way, you don't want this to be happening. What are we getting out of this? They're, they're revealing this empty center at in the advertising enterprise mm-hmm. um, in a way that's meant to hook you back in, but that point of, of rupture is still real and still something that you can grab onto for a critical perspective. Yeah. So many of the critiques that have been levied at Freud, particularly with respect to the notion of the uncanny, attack his reduction of desire and expressions of desire to sexuality. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering that when it comes to creepiness, there's no shortage of its sexualized variant in terms of examples. Do you think it's the case that a theory of sexuality should or does exhaust in some way a theory of creepiness? The reason I ask this is because prominent expressions of creepiness in media often involve repulsive innuendos, like we talked about, such as in Tim and Eric skits. And I also think of music videos like the the videos of Arca and much earlier like Aphex Twin, which combine the sort of aberrant embodiment with sexual allure in, in order to create these forms of symbolic or cultural rupture. How does this connect with, for example, the creepiness of the abandoned schoolroom near Chernobyl or the huddle of zombies that we see in the basement of a movie like I Am Legend? Yeah, I think that... Um... The critique of Freud as being reductively focused on sexuality misunderstands what he's saying about sexuality. He's not saying we think we're doing all these things, but really at bottom we're doing this thing that we already know is sex. He's saying actually sex has a tendency to creep out into other areas. Everything can be sexualizable. Like you could say literally any phrase in a sexually suggestive way that's like a well-known phenomenon of language. So I don't think that it's a series, a a theory of sexuality. I think it's a theory of like sexualization of everything, that this kind of desire can get displaced onto anything. And one point that I make in my book, following up in this like Zizekian vein that I take directly from the, the writings of not Zizek specifically, but that sexual desire is always already out of place. There's no proper place for it. And that's why sexuality becomes a, the guiding concept of Freud's theory of desire. It's not a desire to translate everything into what we think of conventionally as sex. It's a way of calling into question what we think of it. No pun intended, but it's sexual creep 
in a sense, into these other domains as well. I think you're right to point out that the social consequences of, and this is something else that you touch on in the introduction, you point out that being perceived as creepy, it, it erects these complex moral prohibitions around doing creepy things, right? Mm -hmm. For the man, for example, who might not have all the sexual confidence or the goods, as it were, might be feeling very inhibited about making an advance on typically a woman in this case, because there's a very strong heteronormative dimension to the concept as you laid it out here. But on the flip side, there's also this culture of transgression around creepiness with both spoken norms and tacit norms. I'm thinking here of internet trolling, for example, and those cases in which maybe someone has outed themselves as being creepy or they have been condemned to being creepy. They've been marked. And one of the, the common strategies of the creep is to double down on their creepiness, almost as if, well, the cat's out of the bag. I'm just going to take this all the way. But yeah. the interesting thing about this particular moral transgression is that its amplification or acceleration falls back upon itself as just more creepiness. It doesn't port you into any other mortal moral category. And I'm, I'm just curious if, if you think there's something unique about creepiness because of that, or maybe you just disagree with my premise there. Yeah, it does really seem to be a black hole. Once you've been accused of creepiness, like there's no appeal really. Like mm -hmm. you can't, like the very continuing to argue is like being more creepy or something like that. It just seems right. it's the one judgment to which you're just stuck. And mm. I can see in that situation, like the desire to double down or just own it. There's this great drill tweet. I don't know if you're familiar with this account, yeah. like this, this yeah, famously <laughs> nonsensical. And he said, tweeting that I bought the album, Nevermind, because it has a baby's penis on the cover and spending half the day apologizing and half the day doubling down <laughs> like this. <laughs> that's it. That's basically the dynamic. That's interesting because there, there are certain kinds of moral transgressions, as you say. If you have a record of doing racist things in the past, posting racist tweets, there is a way of coming back from that. There is a moral path to reconciliation. But even if you did stop being creepy, whatever that means, how does one apologize for it? It seems to be the, the kind of moral transgression that's immune to a recompense in some sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, this is obviously uh, kind of risky territory. Oh, even to talk about it like this, right. we're wading into this moral murk right now. And what would it take for somebody to clean up their act, to, to look different, to be sexier? At least in like with respect to sexuality, there are certain kinds of advances that depending on the party upon you know whom those advances are being projected on and who's doing the advancing, sometimes it's perceived as creepy and other times it isn't. Mm -hmm. So there's a whole economy of social capital built in to the creepiness dynamic. Right. Yeah, I was thinking specifically of Louis C.K. TV show was so good at exposing like male creepiness and like the male fear of creepiness. Like right. I think of in the pilot for Louis when he is on a date and is trying to be like act normal and he's just like smiling so much and so creepily that she just can't handle it. And finally, like a helicopter comes and takes her away. And I know that I have in my own life been self-conscious if I'm around an attractive woman, don't act weird. And then like, I wound up acting like way weirder than I generally would or something like totally. that. But I think that his offense of trapping women in his hotel room and then masturbating 
Yeah. It's just so weird. And you wonder, like, why would you do that in specific that it seems like somehow harder to live down because you almost want an explanation or you think Mm -hmm. that there's with more kind of. Yeah, this is where it gets murky, you know? Yeah, and I think there's a way to parse this. Of course, it's an act of sexual violence. So that that part can be managed, right? There can be repair there. There can be restoration. But the creepiness aspect (laughs) seems to evade that appeal. And that's what we're talking about. And so just to clarify, we are not vindicating creepy acts here today. And I think this is part of of the, these are the risks involved with talking about this topic. Let's do this. Let's take a, a short detour before we go further along the avenue of creepiness here. How does creepiness differ or what you did in the book on creepiness differ from what you did in the book on awkwardness, because it seems like there's a lot of overlap there. Right. Definitely. I think that there's an intimate relationship between awkwardness and creepiness. You could say that in the dynamic that we were talking about, don't be weird, mm-hmm. that the desire to avoid creepiness is causing me to act awkwardly at the very least. And maybe it can still loop back around and my very attempt to avoid creepiness becomes creepy itself or something like that. But yeah, I think that the one thing that I didn't really foreground in awkwardness is any element of desire. And I think that was like responding to the material that I was talking about. The Office, the main plot kind of centers on this like thwarted crush for many seasons, but it's a weirdly like sexless show. You don't, you get the sense of, you don't get the sense of this passionate like physical attraction between the two of them or something, or the irresistibility. It's almost like an intellectual game. Like I'm the nice guy who's earned this woman and I I deserve to be vindicated. And some of the material that I put into creepiness that I wish I had put into awkwardness, like Wes Anderson films too. That's a very sexless like landscape for the Mm. most part. And so I think that there's something about the awkward theme that's in a, a desire to evade creepiness and therefore evade a sexuality altogether. And so I think that really the work that I was doing on creepiness helped me to resituate what was going on with the awkwardness trend and why it was the way it was. And you can see that I, I reprise the awkwardness theme in the context of creepiness too, to try to broaden it out and resituate it, that I I retrospectively make creepiness like foundational for everything. That brings us to the point in the introduction of your book where you talk about whiteness and heteronormativity as something that may have been elided in that initial analysis of awkwardness, but finds its way into this work on creepiness. And as we were saying in the late aughts, early to mid tens, we have this milieu of media, films, and TV that are marked by all kinds of creepiness and awkwardness too. It's a blend, I would say. Mm -hmm. And we have figures like Zach Galifianakis, Tim and Eric, Adult Swim, as you said, and and so forth, employing creepiness as a kind of self-aware defilement, self-deprecation, and maybe in some sense depreciating their own whiteness or masculinity or making fun of it in some way. And you also mentioned that there's been a cultural shift over the decades Um, from the 70s, for example, in which you had the the kind of bumbling female protagonist like Mary Tyler Moore, um, who basically presented this form of comedy that was hitherto unseen. And that sort of escaped your initial analysis, but finds its place here. Mm -hmm. But 
as soon as we get into like the 90s, we have a figure like Homer Simpson, the, the bumbling father figure. And then moving down the line, what do we have? We have the super bads. We have the Judd Apatow films and so forth. Um, what happens well, if we were to trace a line from the Mary Tyler Moore era to this kind of revolution in TV and film that happened in the 90s, if you want to call it that, into the early aughts and early 10s? Are they dismantling this, the figure of white cis heteronormativity, transfigure it, cr critiquing it? What's happening around those cultural signifiers? Yeah, we've actually been watching a lot of Mary Tyler Moore recently. And if you haven't watched Mary Tyler Moore, I suggest you oh, start with, but just for the audience, I need to give you this guidance that okay. <laughs> start with season four, because that's when Betty White joins the cast and like the dynamic among the characters is much more established. And that's like the classical era of Mary Tyler Moore. But it's striking. They take the focus off of Mary dating and failing to date which had been a, a major theme in the early episodes and just make it be about like the difficulties of navigating this work world. And like, she's the only woman in the workplace that has any authority at least. Mm -hmm. And, and it doesn't matter until it does. And the Betty White character adds a new dynamic too, because she's like almost a sexual predator, which is really interesting for people who know her from golden girls. But I think that already the Homer Simpson kind of dynamic was starting to emerge even in Mary Tyler Moore with the figure of Ted Baxter, who's the anchor, who's right, a complete right. fool. Like he's just a complete idiot. And he embodies this type of like old white dude, like handsome silver fox type of thing. But he's just a complete idiot in the way that Homer Simpson is and like mischievous and bumbling and really in a way starts to take over the show in the way that Homer does. And so I think that really, it, it's interesting to see how these sitcoms that were oriented towards women's uncertain play actually wind up laying down these archetypes that can then get picked up. You could say the same for Lucy, too, that she, her whole thing is that she's not in the right place. And that kind of plays out in her physical embodiment and how much that kind of like calling attention to her physicality and her bodyliness without making her sexy. I, I think to a certain, maybe even limited extent, they did this in the 80s in, in a, with a show like Too Close for Comfort, Jim mm. J. Bullock. And so you have the these characters who are either gay or queer coded in some sense. They're able to make an entrance in the mainstream, but only on these certain terms initially. And then later, as the as there's a shift in the cultural landscape and they gain more acceptance, they, they can evacuate those roles. Did you see something similar happening there? Yeah, I'm not familiar with that show, but it does sound right. And I think there's also how black characters get integrated into yeah. uh, white shows, too. It doesn't matter until it does. And usually when it does matter, it's an awkward moment that somebody said the wrong thing or made the wrong emphasis or something like that. There was a prediction that you made in the book about who would be president after Obama. And that would that would have been Hillary Clinton. We didn't get Hillary Clinton. And I don't think this shakes the fundamental premises that you present to us uh, on the topic of creepiness. But I'm wondering if the victory of Trump and the changing of the cultural land that happened as a result bore any consequences for the trajectory of our collective sensibilities around creepiness and awkwardness. Arguably, Trump was a creep. Right. He definitely is, though his base was either willfully overlooking it or they proudly embraced it in many cases. And no one can forget when he celebrated the creepy, the 
the creepy unsolicited groping of women by wealthy and powerful men, even which his poor and powerless base was quick to defend. And so I maybe you could take me through your thoughts. Like what, what happened in that area? I would say I, I don't watch as much TV as I used to. Sometimes I grab whatever my wife is watching on Netflix, but it seems that there has been a sort of shift away from that aesthetic. Um, and I'm wondering if the Trump era and the sort of emergence or the, the elaboration of the culture war that happened following that, if it has anything to do with it, or maybe you think I'm completely wrong on that point. No, that makes sense. And to be fair, I was writing this in the summer of 2014 when nobody thought that Donald Trump was going to be running for president. Right. Although closer to the time, I did continue to predict that Trump would lose. And he did lose the actual election. He just didn't win the part. He, he won the part where we throw away some of the votes. But I think that the point I was trying to make with this handoff from Obama to Hillary is the sense of like that white male hegemony was coming to uh, its natural end and was no longer taken for granted. You can even see that in, in pop culture. If you're watching for it, the, the pop culture of the mid uh, 2010s was definitely like ready for Hillary or like trying to get us emotionally prepared Absolutely. for a female president. And so really the Trump was disrupting this natural course of events. And one thing to, to think about is the, the strong support of Trump from the alt-right, which kind of is a term that isn't much mentioned anymore, but the people who use those Pepe the Frog mm -hmm. illustrations for everything. And it's been pointed out that Pepe the Frog initially, like one of the first comics that featured him, was talking about how it feels great to just let yourself wet your pants. Like, <laughs> that we should just admit it. Like, just weird reveling in grossness and stuff like that. And the fact that they made him their mascot, I think that means something. And the fact that they took up Trump as such a mascot, I think because of his grossness and because of his, even his hair is creepy. You like wonder, what does he think is happening here? Does he think that people are fooled? Does he think that he's pulling one over on them? Or does he get off on the very fact that people have to act like his hair is normal or something like that? Like, every element of him. Why does he wear his tie so tie so long? Why does he, like, it, you just, he oozes this creepiness and what does he want? And at the end of the day, he seems to just want dominance over everyone and everything and on his own terms. And this is this, but that's not a coherent agenda. And that's not a like way of being in the world that's sustainable. And I think that's why it keeps producing this like creepy outcome where he can be the most powerful man in the world and the most privileged man in the world and still be this terrible whiner who's not getting what he wants. Yeah, there's an irony to it. It's unsurprising that a figure of brute somewhat depoliticized transgression in the form of somebody who willingly wets their pants would be the kind of tinder that would spark this alt-right movement because it almost seems in no way that we've escaped that, that this sort of desire is one that cannot ultimately be satisfied. And we, we could even be seeing outgrowths of that now in the way that Trump is responding to the Ukraine crisis today with Putin, where it's just a celebration of a kind of, of brute power and masculinity and just taking it to the liberal establishment in the United States while not thinking of any other consequence besides that, while the nuclear option is on the table for Putin and Russia. In the midst of the pandemic, we had the George Floyd murder, 
the BLM uprising. And one of the ways that corporations and media has responded is by centering blackness in advertising. We see a lot more black women in advertising, not only as athletes, but as students and professionals and so forth. And I would say that there's generally been a, a shift in tenor it's much more serious these days. We're not seeing as much of the kind of advertising that we've been talking about all along here. One of the ways that we can chalk this up is it's a kind of capitalist recuperation, seizing the the moment, the sort of inflection of morality that has emerged out of the quest for black liberation. But I was wondering if you had any more thoughts of about the current cultural moment with respect to creepiness. Moreover, as we're having this conversation, we're accelerating towards a major global war event. I guess my final question, is there more creepiness to come? Is it in retreat or will we simply see a change in its coordinates? Yeah, I think that the sense of of transgression for its own sake that becomes creepy, like that seems like it's here to stay and continuing. I think you're right that these type of ad campaigns and general HR training webinars on white privilege or something like that, like it's an attempt to establish a new kind of social norm that would help us to navigate these problems in a way that would be intelligible to everybody. Always been the critique of political correctness is that it seems like it's ever shifting. You never know what the right thing is to say, like it was updated last month and you're behind or something like that. But I think the fact that it's so vulnerable to those critiques shows that like the attempt to fix this at the level of representation or at the level of how we talk to each other both of which are very important things, and I don't want to discount them at all. Of course, and, like yeah. progress is good in, in that sense, but it doesn't fix the underlying like political economic realities that keep generating these hierarchies. And I think that the kind of campaigns that you're talking about are an opportunistic way of trying to maintain the capitalist hierarchy without taking the blame for the racial and gender hierarchies that it always Absolutely. generates. And so I think it's incoherent and it's vulnerable. Um, to attack and critique, including from bad faith actors, as we've seen, like they, the kind of anodyne white fragility type of workshops or something like that are, are prompting like radical fascist censorship in the classroom and stuff like this, like these massive campaigns. Like there's no way to win that on the level of, of argument, I think, because the, the type of libidinal, the libidinal investment that people have in those hierarchies and their perceived place in it, like that doesn't go away just through talking to them or through much less through sitting through like a, a video and doing dumb quizzes online or something like this. Yeah. I'm a little bit torn on this because uh, on the one hand, when we think about the production of subjectivity, we, as being one of the things that's produced by capitalism, I, I think one of the things that's required is the kind of subject that's either going to be able to build affinities with oppressed folks, but at the same time, it has to do so in a way where it's addressing more global concerns, like you're saying. And it seems the capitalist you know, apparatus of capture always tends to elide that other piece or looks away or has you do something else for an HR training. Yeah, I think that there is still a creepy element in advertising, though. Like, I watch Hulu a lot, and I suppose I could upgrade to get the ad-free version, but mm-hmm. um, <laughs> it's, it's too good it feels like extortion. They're, they play constant insurance ads, and 
other than the non sequitur, the other main theme of insurance ads is somebody who's way, way too overinvested in a light flow from Progressive or that guy in the yellow shirt who has an emu that follows him around or whatever, that they're absolutely obsessed with this product. Mm. And it's like a winking, like, we know you don't care about insurance, but we do and we'll take care of it for you. Mm. But it's modeling this creepy overinvestment in the workplace that capitalism wants right they want you to they want it to be your everything like i the ideal subject would be the guy that's holding the spinning sign that's just so obsessed with it he can't like he sleeps with his sign in his bed or something like that and so there is a certain type of creepy overinvestment that they still want and it's as though it's being like on the one hand everything's prim and proper over here but then like when we're talking about representing the workplace in advertising, like we want to model this type of creepy overinvestment. It's almost as if they've created a kind of Sartrean bad faith machine just to inculcate you with this false enthusiasm about one of the biggest scams out there, insurance. But maybe to finish up our interview today, you could talk to us about maybe two things, work that you're actually working on and maybe something that you'd like to promote. And is this a topic that you would consider revisiting in the future in some form of writing? Yeah, I think that most of my work right now is growing out of my book, Neoliberalism's Demons. And in all three of the, the pop culture books uh, that we're discussing, I do talk about neoliberalism as the, the cultural framework within which I'm, I'm doing the analysis. And in that book, I do the more kind of direct theoretical work of talking about like what our social order is, how capitalism and race and gender and all of these kind of axes of oppression reinforce each other. And that's been the paradigm for most of my analysis so far since then. And I've thought about returning to more pop culture topics in some ways just based on what I like. People have been asking me about whether I should write write the book on cringe, which seems to be this new iteration of the theme like it cringe is in this weird space between awkwardness and and creepiness i always say that i've already done it like just read my trilogy it already incorporates cringe but maybe i'll have to do that although for right now the project that i'm thinking about next is returning to pop culture but in a very different valence because i'm planning on analyzing a Star Trek franchise mm -hmm. in the 21st century which is generating a lot of material that fans don't really like and that sometimes introduces things into the the canon of star trek that are controversial or weird and just trying to think of it as a way that like why has franchise storytelling become so dominant and how is capitalism distorting the transmission of kind of these important cultural figures and so i was planning on calling it late star trek um the, the final frontier after the end of history. So you still have that <laughs> neoliberalism framework, but that's one that's still very much um, in development. If you want to buy my books, of course, you should buy neoliberalism, Stevens. Sure. And of course, creepiness, awkwardness, and why we defend so sociopaths. Did I get that right for the last? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Why we love sociopaths, all from zero books. Um, yeah, before we go, I, I, I just want to make one more comment on that. In, in recent Zero Books Archives episodes, of course, a lot of the Zero catalog, there's overlap, theoretically speaking. And it's interesting to see. I haven't even thought of Star Trek because I dropped off with The Next Generation. That was the last that I did of that. And now I know there's a series on Picard out there, but it's not doing well. It's just 
I don't really like it. I think it's just they don't seem to have a feel for the characters. The story, it's they try to do this heavily serialized, like streaming style story, which Star Trek just doesn't lend itself to that. It's popular with fans because they've been gone for so long without their beloved characters that they're just happy to see Picard on screen at all, I think. Right. Um, yeah, like the other series like Discovery or Enterprise back in the day were not very popular with fans and also went into the past of the universe instead of moving the story forward. Now they're trucking along. They're generating so much stuff. There's going to be like more Star Trek series going simultaneously in the next few years than there had been total before. Like, it's so weird. I'm using this word in a derogatory sense, but there's a kind of Stalinization of sci-fi right now in the sense that all of these franchises are building five-year plans and basically preempting the creation of the new in our society in any way, or at least constraining it to a very narrow vector, perhaps in the form of Netflix series that are probably highly vetted. I, I, I imagine what happens in those those meeting rooms involves people who are basically have binged now a half a decade worth of culture and their sensibilities are so refined. It, it really leaves open the question whether or not we are going to get something new that has not come through the filter of everything that is already known and, and been rendered in our, both our aesthetic and our political imagination. Yeah, I think that one of my conspiracy theories is that one reason to constantly re reboot old properties mm. from like the 60s and 70s usually mm. is that it frees you of the responsibility to embrace diversity because Spider-Man's white. What are we going to do? Captain America's white. We don't want to change these characters. And I think Star Trek is a little bit more immune from that because it always had diversity built into it. That's and right. in Star Wars, you saw they tried to diversify the main cast and there was like huge backlash against it. So like, it's um, white male hegemony by other means. Mm. But we just, we ha we can't, our hands are tied. We have to keep doing the same stupid thing over and over again. And there's also this strange sort of David Lewis um, plurality of worlds sort of thing happening where there's a convergence of all the iterations, like basically the extended universe of any of these. This happened originally with Star Trek in the late 80s, or early 90s, mm -hmm. when when Captain Kirk and Picard were on, on screen together for the first time. I don't know if that was the, the incipient moment for this aesthetic or cultural dynamic, but with Spider-Man, I think if I'm not mistaken, and I'm definitely showing my age here. There's a series which includes all the Spider-Mans. Um, yeah. <laughs> a, yeah, the animated one. It was a decent movie, but it was just very convoluted. I think mm. that really the root of it is not Star Trek. It's comic books. Mm. And the kind of the expanded universe concept was from comic books. And it was ultimately a marketing thing because... Right if you need to know what's going on in other corners of this universe, you need to follow as many titles as possible or like mm -hmm. you have to buy this one to understand what's going on in the other one. And like the, I, I grew up reading comics and like came of age in the era when they were starting to get more, most exploitative with it. And I thought it was so funny because the infinity war movie, which was this like massive crossover that didn't make any sense. and wasn't very narratively uh, like satisfying. That was literally redoing one of these exploitative like summer crossover events that mm. you know was targeting every kid's allowance of back <laughs> when I was growing up and it was not very satisfying back then either like I started to realize man they're just kind of stringing me along here and the moment of fulfillment is never going to arrive
and maybe it's just a function of my age, but like I've seemed to have topped out on my tolerance for the kind of input that comes with that final scene in an endgame with all yeah. the characters on the screen. I don't know if I, I'll just say this when the Star Wars Batman crossover happens, I'm checking out and I'm totally done. I'll catch oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Adam, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your day, your very busy schedule uh, to be with us here on Zero Books Archives. And uh, hopefully we see something less creepy, but yet more creepy from you in the future. All right. Thank you.